0: Please note, this story contains discussions and mentions of violence and sexual violence. Henry Kissinger died at the age of 100 on November 29, 2023. His death sparked strong reactions from both supporters and critics, an intensity always present, even in life. Kissinger served as National Security Advisor and Secretary of State from 1969 to 1977. In those eight years, he left an indelible mark on U.S. foreign policy and the international community as a whole. He has been praised as America's greatest statesman for his diplomacy with communist countries like the Soviet Union and China amidst the Cold War, but also reviled as its bloodiest war criminal for his connections to violence in the Vietnam War, Chile, Bangladesh, Cyprus, and East Timor. So the question is, what legacy does Henry Kissinger leave behind? To help us make sense of and answer that question, I talked to Dr. Salim Yacoub.
1: Yes, my name is Salim Yacoub, and I teach history here at UCSB.
0: Well, thank you again for coming in. We're really excited to have you here today. Um, You're a professor who specializes in U.S. foreign relations, which, you know, really makes you the perfect person to talk about the actions and the legacy of Henry Kissinger. Um, For many people including myself Kissinger is really tied to President Richard Nixon and Southeast Asia in the late 60s to 70s and we'll get to that later but um in your opinion where should we start in his life to understand who he is and what made him who he is
1: Well if you want to take a bit of time to study him fully you would probably want to begin with his childhood and his upbringing he was born in Germany he was a German Jew, um, who fled with his family to the United States in the late 1930s, when he was 15 years old, to escape Nazi persecution. And he, uh, interestingly, returned to Germany a few years later as a young army officer. And the fact that he was from Germany, knew the language, meant that he was very useful to the occupying U.S. forces in defeated Germany when it came to administering those portions of uh, Germany where Kissinger was operating. So he had this, from from a very early age, when he was in his early 20s, he was already taking on some fairly important leadership roles or and analytical roles when it came to assessing the political situation in Germany in the immediate aftermath of the war. So it's, yeah, it's a very interesting biography. You know, right from the beginning, he's in the thick of uh, American decision-making regarding uh, war and peace.
0: Right, yeah. And I remember there was like this famous quote when he became Secretary of State, like, There is no other country in the world where a man of my origin could be standing next to the president of the United States.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, that was it was a very important part of his identity, the fact that he was an immigrant. And 50 years ago and a bit longer, 55 years ago, when he first became a public figure or at least a nationally known public figure, it was it was less ordinary for immigrants to have such prominent roles in American life than it is today. So there was there was a bit more attention paid to the fact that he was not American-born and spoke with a heavy accent.
0: After returning from the war, Kissinger earned bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees from Harvard University. In addition to teaching at his alma mater, he served as a consultant to think tanks and government agencies before becoming foreign policy advisor to Republican presidential nominee Nelson Rockefeller. In 1969, President Richard Nixon appointed Henry Kissinger as national security advisor. Then, while keeping him in that position, he, in 1973, picked Kissinger to be Secretary of State. I asked Dr. Yacoub about the significance of Kissinger being able to operate in these dual roles.
1: It meant that he had immediate access to the president. That was a continuation of his former role because, as National Security Advisor, he worked in the White House, and and he had an office just down the hall from the president. And so he, he met with Nixon every day and was part of his part of Nixon's very um, you know small circle of advisors when it came to foreign policy. And often, foreign policy was decided just by the two of them alone. So he, that continued um, into the period when Kissinger was Secretary of State. But he now, as Secretary of State, had control over the bureaucracy of the largest agency or department of the U.S. government concerned with foreign relations. So you know all of the ambassadors and other diplomats who were part of the foreign service answered directly to Kissinger in a way that hadn't been true before. And Kissinger, of course, was the face of American foreign policy in a way that hadn't been true prior to his appointment as Secretary of State. So it just magnified his role in all kinds of ways. It gave him an ability to manage foreign policy on so many different dimensions in a way that wasn't true when he was just National Security Advisor.
0: I see. So it's like, amplifying this power he already has as national security advisor.
1: Absolutely. And in fact, you know, when he first became national security advisor, there was a different person who was secretary of state, of course, that was William Rogers. And William Rogers was not a very forceful personality and was not able to put his stamp on Nixon's foreign policy in the way that um, he perhaps hoped to. So, Kissinger was in a rivalry with William Rogers and in on a number of different occasions and, you know, for a number of different policy decisions, he was at odds with with Rogers and was trying to push u s. policy in a different direction. Now, what's interesting is that during that time that Kissinger was national security advisor over that four-year period, he did eventually, defeat Rogers bureaucratically and become um, much more influential when it came to setting US foreign policy. And he effectively sidelined Rogers, but it was not an easy thing for Kissinger to do. And the whole time that he was national security advisor and not secretary of state, he did have to take into consideration what Rogers wanted to do. And so that meant that limited his effectiveness. But once he became secretary of state, Rogers was out of the picture and Nixon actually had Rogers' job in addition to the one he had held previously.
0: Right, right. And how was this power affected by Watergate in the face of, you know, American public not trusting the government anymore, could they still turn to Kissinger as this trusted dominant figure?
1: Yes, absolutely. And that was something that further magnified Kissinger's power, because the Watergate scandal really started to become a major national obsession in the spring and summer of 1973, And then at the end of that summer of 1973, Kissinger becomes Secretary of State. So he takes office at a time when Nixon is really preoccupied with the Watergate scandal. And Nixon would actually be forced from office uh, just a year later in the summer of 1974. So that final year of his presidency is really overshadowed by Watergate. And Nixon has a very hard time focusing on anything other than the desperate effort to save his presidency. So that means that Kissinger, who already was a dominant figure, already was very influential and forceful when it came to um, pursuing American foreign policy goals abroad, became even more powerful because he didn't have, in, in in many instances, he made decisions that Nixon himself might not have made and didn't have to worry about Nixon's second-guessing, because Nixon was so focused on Watergate.
0: Okay, I see. Now, I sort of want to branch into talking about some of these decisions, some of these policies, but first off, what were some of the principles that guided Kissinger in his policymaking? You know, he's, for example, he's really associated with realpolitik, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, he liked to see himself as a realist, as someone who was not swayed by sentiment or emotion someone who focused in a very clear-eyed and at times cold-blooded way on the national interest of the, of the United States and relentlessly pursued the interest of the, of the nation regardless, or at least without too much regard for uh, considerations of morality and principle. So that certainly colored the way that he pursued the major foreign policy issues of the day. Vietnam was was the most important and indeed consuming issue that he faced when he first became national security advisor. I mean, that that issue dominates the first uh, term of President Nixon. The, The United States finally pulls its ground troops out of the country in January 1973. So just as Nixon's second term is beginning. So the whole first term is dominated by Vietnam. And Nixon basically set the policy. Kissinger sometimes acted as if he was more in charge or more um, consequential when it came to setting basic policy goals in Vietnam than he actually was. Uh, But he executed Nixon's policies in a very kind of deliberate, and in some cases, brutal manner. Um, Now, there's an interesting side to Nixon and Kissinger, which is that at the very same time that they are pursuing the Vietnam War, and in some ways escalating it, they're also taking pretty dramatic steps to normalize and ease relations with the communist superpowers, the Soviet Union and communist China. And it's during Nixon's first term, and especially in the year 1972, which uh, not coincidentally was an election year, uh, that Nixon makes uh, his visits to China and to the Soviet Union. He's the first American president to visit China, the first sitting American president to visit the Soviet Union, apart from a visit that Franklin Roosevelt took A trip that Franklin Roosevelt took to Yalta in Crimea, Ukraine, in 1945 at the very end of World War II. So apart from that, no sitting U.S. president had visited either the Soviet Union or China. And Nixon does that in the space of a few months in the spring of 1972. And that's, you know, Kissinger, again, these were initiatives that Nixon basically spearheaded and guided on his own. But uh, Kissinger executed them in a very um, forceful and in some ways self-serving manner.
0: So with this idea of self-serving, I've heard Kissinger being called, you know, like a modern day Machiavelli, you know. Do you think that term is accurate for him?
1: Uh, To some extent. I mean, a lot of it was image crafting. Kissinger really um, liked the um, national attention. He liked media attention. And he felt, not without some reason, that it would be beneficial to the Nixon administration if people viewed it uh, with some measure of awe and, uh, you know, a kind of starstruck attitude. Because he he felt that uh, one way to... Um, generate support for the Nixon administration, and also blunt criticism of it, was to generate excitement and a sense of mystery about the ways in which the Nixon administration was conducting foreign policy. In other words, the idea was, um, okay, you may think that this is just a very standard hawkish Republican administration that is relentlessly pursuing the Cold War abroad, but actually, it's more complicated than that and a lot more interesting. And in, because the real motive force in Nixon's foreign policy is this uh, German Jewish emigre with a foreign accent and an air of mystery. And he is conducting these secret diplomatic missions where he's trying to make peace on the global stage. And he's talking to uh, adversaries that the United States has never uh, formally. Uh, met with before, like the government of communist China, and he's facilitating these very dramatic summit meetings that President Nixon is able to engage in. And, and so in and, and it and part of that was actually presenting himself as something of a swinger, kind of a a, a guy who dated beautiful women, who had a an exciting but somewhat mysterious love life. Now, this was all um, for show. I mean, Nixon, I mean, Kissinger had, he was divorced, and that, of course, helped fuel speculation because he was an eligible bachelor, and there was all the speculation about whom he was dating. In fact, he had a steady girlfriend whom he later married. But he nonetheless cultivated this image of himself as this exciting swinger man about town he would show up at important functions like the oscars and you know major uh, galas you know art uh, exhibits and things like that and often he would do so with a young attractive woman on his arm uh, you know, an actress or a young figure a, a, a young female reporter or someone like that and you know, generating all this speculation about whether the two of them were dating and all that kind of stuff. So he you know he's 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 on the gossip pages in, in, as well as you know on the uh, in the regular news coverage. And you know Nixon was quite annoyed by this because he thought that Kissinger was hogging the credit which he was but Kissinger's basic answer which he didn't necessarily Communicate directly to Nixon, but he kind of implied this was: look, it's essential that I do this for the benefit of our administration. This will this will um, inspire the public to view us more positively, and in fact, I'm doing it for the both of us. I'm mean, really I'm doing it for you, Mr. President. <laughs> and so that was Nick's, that was Kissinger's way of justifying his hogging of the credit and his. Um, you know, frequent appearance on, uh, in, in news coverage. He was very skilled at presenting his ideas to different audiences and telling different audiences what they wanted to hear and getting lots of people who had very widely differing views on foreign policy matters to think that Kissinger was on their side. So, he, so especially when it came to the Vietnam War, when he was national security advisor, when he was meeting with Nixon or with other figures in the administration who were very gung ho about uh, prosecuting the war as vigorously as they could within the context of a general policy of winding it down, he would talk very tough and he often would be the toughest guy in the room, the, the, the guy who was most um, in favor of taking the hard line, of of pushing the envelope, of taking risks, things like that. But then when he, he would meet with uh, reporters or he would meet with Democratic uh, Congress members, people who were interested in a more dovish approach to foreign affairs, and he would present himself as basically in agreement with them. And his, his message would be, look, I'm serving this president, who's kind of crazy. And somebody needs to be sitting in the room with him and reining him in and keeping him from pursuing his most um, you know, irrational and wildest impulses. And I'm that guy. I can talk to him. So you should be thankful and you should feel relieved that I am in the room with him, even though I'm basically on your side. So he, he was able to do that kind of thing Uh, to say different things to different people in a way that, you know, sometimes was quite duplicitous and dishonest.
0: The conversation then turned to Kissinger's policymaking. First off, he's lauded for his role in easing tensions with the Soviet Union and China. I asked Dr. Yacoub about how Kissinger approached Cold War strategy using something called detente.
1: Sure. So detente is a French word that means relaxation of tensions. And the idea was that the United States should try to normalize its relations with its communist adversaries, not be in a state of perpetual hostility with them, because that was very dangerous, you know, especially with the Soviet Union uh, having a, a nuclear arsenal that was comparable to that of the United States. Communist China had nuclear weapons as well, but uh, on a much smaller scale. So the idea was, look, it's it's... Yes, we're we're in a strong and long-standing rivalry with these powers, but we need to find some way to deal with them that doesn't perpetually threaten to break out into global war. So we need to find areas where we can cooperate. And so this was something that the U.S. government had been generally aiming toward throughout the 1960s. You see moves toward detente throughout that decade especially the aftermath of the cuban missile crisis of 1962 which brought the world very close to the brink of nuclear war and sort of put a scare into everybody you know including members of you know, the governments of the united states and the soviet union so you do see, you do see moves toward détente in the 1960s although it's complicated by the fact that the united states is also escalating the vietnam war so it's this crazy situation where there's uh, you know increased violence on the periphery of the Cold War struggle, but uh, continuing efforts to stabilize the situation when it comes to the core dispute between the United States and the Soviet Union. When Nixon and Kissinger come into office then, it's pretty much expected that they would continue the efforts that the previous administration of Lyndon Johnson had made to try to normalize, relations to try to move more squarely into the era of détente. So so that was not anything all that unusual or revolutionary. What was different was that because they were because this was a republican administration, it wasn't as vulnerable to red baiting in the same way that democratic administrations uh, had been. So the, the republican uh, republican led governments could move towards closer and more productive relations with communist countries without having to worry so much about being accused of being soft on communism. Uh, You may have heard the expression, you know, only Nixon could go to China because yeah, if a Democrat had tried to do that, he would immediately have been pilloried as soft on communism. Whereas Nixon had impeccable anti-communist credentials. So he could make the move towards Normalizing relations with China and not be attacked as soft on communism. So that that same general principle applied when it came to the Soviet Union as well. <clears throat> now, there were so so the general move towards um, detente involved reaching arms control agreements with the Soviet Union. and for the most part, these were seen as necessary and positive, Accomplishments. Now, when you look more closely at Kissinger's and Nixon's handling of the um, negotiations with the Soviet Union over nuclear weapons, you can see areas where they fell short. And in particular, the the professional arms control negotiators, uh, you know, people who were part of the State Department, part of the diplomatic corps, part of the more permanent U.S. foreign policy-making bureaucracy. They often felt that um, Nixon and Kissinger, and especially Kissinger, cut some corners, and they, you know, they rushed to reach agreements and announced them with great fanfare before all of the necessary issues had been resolved. And one issue in particular was the so-called MIRV issue. Those are multiple, independently targeted reentry vehicles. M I R V. And basically, what that means is um, every, not every, but many of the nuclear rockets that could be shot at the Soviet Union contain not just one warhead, but rather multiple warheads that each of them could be targeted uh, to a, a different place, right? So you shoot one rocket and it splits off into several independently targeted uh, warheads. And, you know, you, it, it achieves a much wider um, scale of destruction. So it's a very dangerous and destabilizing uh, kind of nuclear technology. And there was a very strong push within the bureaucracy of the uh, U.S. foreign policy establishment, or, you know, within the, you know, among the professional negotiators, the people who were working under Kissinger at his direction, to get this issue resolved. And there, you know, people were saying, look, you know, Henry, we need to, Let's not rush to make an agreement just yet. Let's try to get some um, understanding on MERVs so that can be included in the agreement. Kissinger was too eager to announce an agreement during the 1972 election year for the benefit of his uh, boss, Richard Nixon. Um, and so he just uh, pushed through the agreement without having the MERV issue resolved. And so both sides continued to build MIRVs and that became, you know, a, a, an increasingly destabilizing element of the of the nuclear um, standoff. So those are the kinds of critiques that you sometimes see where, you know, Kissinger, because he was so committed to this razzle dazzle um, diplomacy, you know, wanted to make headlines and have very, um, you know, dramatic results that could be announced to the nation, uh, neglected these seemingly arcane, but actually very dangerous details. And so that sort of criticism is something you hear, um, not just on on nuclear weapons, but on other aspects of U.S. foreign policy.
0: Kissinger's death in November was met with condolences from the Chinese government and state media. President Xi Jinping sent condolences to President Joe Biden, in which he called Kissinger, quote, a world-renowned strategist and a good old friend of the Chinese people, end quote. Kissinger visited China in July of this year, one of about 100 visits since his first over 50 years ago. Dr. Yakuub then explained the significance of that 1971 secret trip to Beijing.
1: Yeah. So this is one of, the, one of those cases where Kissinger became very strongly associated, very closely associated with a policy that was really... Um, Nixon's uh, baby Nixon as early as 1967 in an article he wrote for the journal foreign affairs had talked about the necessity of reaching some kind of understanding with communist China. And this was at a time when the two countries were not speaking to each other at all. And there was just no way that the Johnson administration could move towards rapprochement with China Partly because it was preoccupied with Vietnam and partly also because it would have to worry about being red baited. But Nixon, as early as 1967, was saying, listen, we need to, to reach some kind of an understanding. And so it was always Nixon's initiative that the United States move dramatically towards normalizing relations with China. And Kissinger actually was somewhat skeptical of that approach in the early years of the Nixon administration. But once it became clear that Nixon was very determined to do this kissinger took it on as a project that he would pursue on behalf of the president so it really was nixon's initiative nonetheless kissinger was the figure who on the ground level brought it about and as you you know it starts out with these secret meetings with chinese officials in poland in 1969 and 1970 and then in 1971 as you said he uh, secretly visits China. Kissinger takes a trip to, to I think it was to uh, South Asia, to Pakistan, and he sort of disappears for a couple days. He's the, the cover story is that he was feeling sick, and so he just needed to stay in his hotel room until he felt better. But what he was actually doing was secretly flying to China, where he met with um, Zhou Enlai, the... Um, uh, uh, Chinese uh, Prime Minister, and basically laid the ground for improved relations between the two countries and for a visit by Nixon to China in the following year, 1972. So, And then when, when Kissinger returns from this trip in the summer of 1971, it's announced with great fanfare that he actually had made this trip. And so that that's really the beginning of the Myth of Henry Kissinger, this persona that he occupies of the this mysterious emigre figure who's conducting secret missions on behalf of the United States, in on behalf of world peace. That that it was the it was the sudden announcement of his secret vi- visit to China that really catapulted Kissinger into uh, the status of a of a superstar. And you know the basic idea was it was unrealistic for the United States to have no formal relations whatsoever with a nation that at that time had hundreds of millions of people you know now it's you know over a billion but the um you know it was a huge um a huge nation very important when it came to asian affairs and increasingly it was uh clear that it would in the decades to come be a major global power as well. I mean, at the time it was still in the, in the throes of the cultural revolution, which was causing all kinds of chaos at home and was actually pushing China into a a strange sort of self-imposed isolation where it was actually, you know, severing relations with other countries and uh, deliberately not dealing with a lot of uh, nations diplomatically. So it was kind of it was at a moment when china seemed to be uh, in eclipse but it was recognized that th- this was only a temporary situation and that in the years and decades ahead it would be a major force in global affairs and so that you know that's something that nixon definitely recognized and you know kissinger recognized it too after seeing how important nixon saw this issue Um, Also, normalizing relations with China would make it easier, Nixon and Kissinger hoped, to exit the Vietnam War in a graceful or relatively graceful way. Because China was providing lots of military and other support to North Vietnam, and the hope was, okay, if we improve relations with China, maybe we can persuade China to lessen its support For North Vietnam, and then North Vietnam will see the wisdom of reaching some kind of a settlement with the United States that would allow it, you know, to withdraw from Vietnam in a face-saving way and not just be chased out (laughs) as it basically was in the end.
0: Though Kissinger's greatest controversy is perhaps tied to the Vietnam War, I asked about his role that would earn him the Nobel Peace Prize, that is, ending it. Both he and Le Duc Tho were awarded the prize for negotiating the 1973 Paris Peace Accords.
1: Yeah, the basic idea was how to exit the Vietnam War without seeing an immediate collapse of the South Vietnamese government. I mean, the whole purpose of the U.S. presence in Vietnam was to prop up this non-communist regime in the South. And the the North Vietnamese um, wanted to reunite the whole country under their own leadership. And that, of course, would mean um, dismantling the Southern regime and making the whole country, uh, placing the whole country under the leadership of the government in Hanoi, the North Vietnamese government. So the basic idea was to reach some kind of an agreement with the North that would allow the south vietnamese government to remain in place at least for some period of time after the americans withdrew and in, this was actually a rather cynical strategy sometimes referred to as the decent interval strategy and the thinking is as follows you know this is like nixon and kissinger talking to each other we know that as soon as we withdraw U.S. troops from South Vietnam, the days of the South Vietnamese regime are numbered. That it really, in the end, cannot survive without U.S. troops on the ground propping it up. The question is, how long can we get it to last before it does collapse? If we withdraw and it collapses immediately, then that would look really bad for us, you know, for the United States. If, on the other hand, we withdraw and South Vietnam holds on for another couple years, and then it collapses, we can say it wasn't our fault, it was the fault of the South Vietnamese regime. You know, we gave them all the support they needed, we gave them a chance, and they blew it. And there's there's a famous or infamous Conversation, which of course was taped, Nixon was secretly taping his conversations at the time, in the summer of 1972, where um, Nixon asked Kissinger, "Well, look, what what happens if we withdraw? Does that mean that in you know the space of you know just a few months, uh, North Vietnam gobbles up the South? Uh, how is that going to make us look?" And Kissinger says, "Don't worry, Mr. President, if." It takes a couple years for that to happen. Nobody will blame us. It will be seen as the result of South Vietnamese incompetence. And that's basically what Nixon and Kissinger were trying to engineer, was some agreement that would enable the South Vietnamese regime to survive uh, for a, you know, a decent interval before collapsing. And so their basic method of doing this was to build in some safeguards, you know, a uh, a buffer zone between the North and the South, um, some agreements on what kinds of troops could be permitted, you know, in certain areas that sort of pick p- working around the edges of the issue in a way that would hopefully slow down the North Vietnamese advance. And you you do see a very interesting drama right at the end of that negotiation. This we're talking the basically the fall of 1972, uh, which interestingly is co- coinciding with the presidential election, which Nixon wins in a in an overwhelming way, um, where the South Vietnamese government realizes how perilous its situation is, and it starts putting all kinds of obstacles in the way of an agreement between the United States and North Vietnam in order to, you know, basically to to block an agreement to force the United States to remain um, in South Vietnam. And you you eventually get this kind of uh, strange eruption of violence in December of 1972, um, right around the Christmas season. So it becomes known as the Christmas bombing. So this is after Nixon has won re-election in an overwhelming way. But the negotiations over Vietnam are ongoing. And Nixon, in this effort that is designed both to show the North Vietnamese that he means business, but also to reassure the South Vietnamese government that um, he's not going to abandon them, he conducts this very um, massive bombing campaign against North Vietnam, uh, for over oh, the space of oh, a couple of weeks, maybe twelve days, um, and then you know, after sending that message, in his view, he brings the campaign to an end and uh, reaches an agreement with with um, with the North Vietnamese that you know essentially it allows the South Vietnamese government to remain in place. So that the previous North Vietnamese demand had been that the South Vietnamese government should be dismantled at the point of the agreement. So with the concession that the Americans got was, no, the South Vietnamese government stays in place and at least is given an opportunity to um, try to survive. But everybody understands that once the Americans have actually pulled their troops out, th- that the South Vietnamese regime is not going to last long. And indeed, in the spring of 1975, so just a couple, little more than two years after the American troops withdraw from South Vietnam, uh, North Vietnam overruns the South and extinguishes the South Vietnamese regime.
0: Dr. Yacoub mentioned the 1972 Hanoi Christmas bombings, whose significance in ending the war have been debated. North Vietnam said the bombings had no influence on the peace talks, while an aide to Kissinger said, quote, we bombed the North Vietnamese into accepting our concessions, end quote. A remark, which Dr. Yacoub explains, was sardonic and self-critical.
1: Sort of snarky way of saying, yeah, you know, we bombed the North Vietnamese into accepting our concessions. In other words, that you know, the, you know, the United States was already making these major concessions to the North Vietnamese. Um, and so it was a, it was a fundamental uh, w- with defeat, you might say uh, for the, the, the for the United States. nonetheless, just to get to the point where you're actually signing on the dotted line, you had to make a show of force. Um, you know, historians have disagreed over the role that the Christmas bombs played in the end game of the negotiations. Some argue that it was basically, Unnecessary and therefore a kind of horrific um, and arguably criminal display of violence or not just display, but actual infliction of violence, you know, killing thousands of Vietnamese, mostly civilians, um, for for no good reason. Uh, others say, well, it, you know, it, it may have been morally uh, uh compromised and distasteful, but it did actually finally nudge the parties uh, to the negotiating table. So I'm not an expert on Vietnam, so I don't have a strong view on that, but that's basically how historians have debated it.
0: After the United States withdrew from Vietnam, North Vietnamese forces violated the terms of the peace agreement and conquered the South. In 1976, Vietnam was reunited as a socialist republic. Wasn't this what the U.S. had wanted to prevent all along, I asked, because of the fear of the domino theory? With the exception of Laos and Cambodia, neighboring countries did not turn to communism. So was that fear justified?
1: Yeah, I mean, the domino theory goes back uh, quite a bit earlier than Kissinger. It actually first uh, appears in a recognizable form under the presidency of Dwight Eisenhower in the 1950s. And I think Eisenhower actually used the metaphor of the dominoes, saying if we if we allow one country in that region to fall to communism, then the others will, like a row of dominoes, fall to communism as well. So Kissinger did not forcefully um, disagree with that idea, but his basic rationale was less the domino theory than the notion of American credibility. The idea was, okay. maybe it wasn't such a great idea for the United States to plant the flag in South Vietnam and say, this is where we're taking our stand. But we have done that. And having done that, we can't with uh, we can't um, retreat. We have to show our allies and our adversaries that when we make a commitment, when we tell another country that we will stand by you, um, that we will do it, that we won't just Uh, beat a hasty retreat at the first sign of any resistance. So that's the basic notion of credibility, that you've made a commitment, and if you renege on that commitment, that will have disastrous consequences for America's role on the world stage. The, The contrary argument, especially in the context of Vietnam, was that one element of American credibility was some notion that the United States was acting rationally, that it was not um, going to throw huge amounts of firepower for the sake of an insignificant gain, when we're talking about real estate on the world stage, that it's crazy for the United States to get sucked into a conflict like the Vietnam War. And the more the United States does those kinds of things, the less credibility it has because people look at the, the U.S. government and say, hey, these folks aren't, aren't rational. They're, they're making crazy decisions. So that, that's sort of the flip side of the credibility argument. And c- certainly in the context of the Vietnam War, that way of thinking about credibility became much more um, powerful, that you know more figures within the American foreign policy establishment took that on board and said, yeah, we, we have to be a lot more discerning, a lot more selective about the kinds of commitments that we make. And in fact, Nixon himself said that in a policy initiative that became known as the Nixon, Nixon Doctrine. The, the idea was, yeah, we, we're not going to be quite as aggressive in confronting communism globally as we have been in the past we realize that we need to be more selective about where we take a stand. But Nixon too agreed that even though he's, he thought that was a wise position to take generally, it should still uphold commitments it had already made. You know, It had already made a commitment to South Vietnam, so it should continue to uphold that commitment, even though it would limit its future commitments going forward. But anyway, so you're asking about the I mean, there was the impact of the the North Vietnamese takeover of the South and what role that played in Americans thinking about the domino theory. In one sense, it did, at least on a superficial level, confirm the domino theory. Because if you look at what actually happens in the spring and summer of 1975, you see a succession of setbacks for the United States. You've got the government of you know, the South Vietnamese government is taken over, is you know is extinguished, and South Vietnam is overrun by the North. Uh, Laos goes communist right around that same time. The the, the you know, Laotian communist insurgency uh, prevails, and uh, more ominously. Cambodia also is taken over in a by a communist insurgency, the uh, the Khmer Rouge, and of course, in the uh, next five years or so after that, the Khmer Rouge commit a um, you know a series of just really heinous um, acts of genocide that um, you know result in the deaths of probably a couple million people so so for that, so conservatives and hawk people who took a more hawkish position on foreign affairs in the united states could point to those cases and say look we were right all along once you fail you know w- once a single country in that region falls to communism then others will fall in its wake on the other hand it was pretty much contained to those three countries you know the, the those three nations of indochina that all we, that often were seen as kind of constituting a particular unit in geopolitical terms. And so, yes, that, you know, Indochina basically went communist, but it didn't, you know, spread to Thailand or to uh, the Philippines or Indonesia or anything anything like that, which the, the full-fledged domino theory would have you believe would happen.
0: About Cambodia, this is also, you know, another point where, Kissinger may be, has drawn the most condemnation, you know, Mm -hmm. with um, Operation Menu, the Mm -hmm. the secret covert bombing campaign against Cambodia, which, you know, some people say led to the rise of the Khmer Rouge. Um, What do records say about Kissinger's involvement in this covert bombing campaign?
1: So this is a secret effort to defeat or at least contain the North Vietnamese inside Cambodia. So in, the, in 1969 and in 1970, there was a concern that the North Vietnamese were using Cambodian territory to infiltrate troops and supplies into South Vietnam to fight against the South Vietnamese government and the United States. In other words, there were these North Vietnamese sanctuaries in Cambodia that uh, were posing a serious problem for the whole U.S. effort to maintain the South Vietnamese government. So the idea was, okay, we will um, take military action against those North Vietnamese sanctuaries. And because we're telling the American public that we're winding down the Vietnam War, this is not something we want to um, own up to. So this is done in secret. The hope is, okay, we'll we'll continue the overall policy of uh, winding down the U.S. involvement in Vietnam, but as a way of facilitating that process, you know giving us the the you know the breathing room that we need to conduct this withdrawal, we need to confront these North Vietnamese forces in Cambodia. But we should be quiet about it because it just would look strange for us to be bombing Cambodia, for the public to see us bombing Cambodia at the same time that we're saying we're bringing the war to an end. So it's done, it, it's kept uh, a secret from the American public and from Congress. But then what happens is that in 1970, you have a coup occurring in Cambodia, bringing a new government into power. Now, the the previous government had been neutralist, the government of uh, Prince Sihanouk. And one of the reasons that this bombing campaign in Cambodia was kept secret was to avoid complications with this neutralist government. But now you have a new situation where you've got a very staunchly pro-US, anti-communist government in Cambodia. And so the United States doesn't have the same need to Avoid diplomatic complications with with Cambodia. It, it sort of is has it sees eye to eye with the Cambodian government on the threat posed by North Vietnam. That combined with the fact that the secret bombing has not uh, achieved the objective of wiping out the North Vietnamese sanctuaries, persuades Nixon to take a more overt move in Cambodia. So in the April and May of 1970, U.S. troops openly invade Cambodia. And you know, it's announced that the that U.S. forces are moving into Cambodia to wipe out these sanctuaries, <clears throat> to deal with the problem for once and for all. And because there's a new government to Cambodia that can formally welcome this, it's not a diplomatic uh, problem. This, of course, uh, unleashes a huge wave of protest in the United States. It's in the immediate aftermath of the announcement of the U.S. entry into Cambodia that the Kent State killings take place for students shot dead in uh, Kent State uh, University in Ohio. And, you know, the, the, you know the, the anti-Vietnam War movement had been winding down to some extent Uh, In 1969 and 1970, because Nixon was ostensibly, you know, uh, lowering the U.S. profile in Vietnam, but this, of course, moves things in precisely the opposite direction. Revives the anti-war movement, and you've got a period of renewed chaos at home over what the United States is doing in Cambodia. Now, there's a longer-term. Um, argument that people have made about the impact of the secret bombing and the U.S. military operations in Cambodia, and uh, and you know the impact that those policies had on Cambodian history over the next several years, and that argument is that it so profoundly destabilizes Cambodian society. It you know drives so many people into uh you know you desperate uh, straits it creates refugees it kills thousands of people it fundamentally disrupts the fabric of village life in Cambodia and that creates a an environment in which the Khmer Rouge the communist insurgency can gain public support in the country and also um You know, mount its insurgency and ultimately prevail. So, in 1975, you know, around the same time that the North Vietnamese prevail, the Khmer Rouge take power in Cambodia and then proceed to unleash a reign of terror against uh, its own people. Um, So, the the argument is that, well, sure, maybe the primary culprit in this. Catastrophe is the Khmer Rouge. Nonetheless, it's the actions of Nixon and Kissinger that set the stage for the Khmer Rouge to take power. I think there's a lot of force to that argument. I mean, it has it's uh, it makes a lot of sense to assign a good deal of the blame to Nixon and Kissinger. Sometimes I think it gets uh, a bit exaggerated. And people act as if Nixon and Kissinger were the only uh, decision makers when it came to Cambodia's future and in, in some ways downplay the role that the Khmer Rouge itself played or that Cambodian um, civil society itself played in bringing about this catastrophe. But nonetheless, I think it's people are on target when they criticize Nixon and Kissinger pretty severely for what they did in Cambodia.
0: Kissinger has also faced criticism for his actions, or lack thereof, in Bangladesh. According to Washington Post columnist Ishan Tharoor, in 1970, ethnic Bengalis in East Pakistan had won elections that spelled democratic success for Bengali nationalists. But then, West Pakistan's military generals, who were mostly ethnic Punjabis and who scorned ethnic Bengalis, launched a crackdown against East Pakistanis led by West Pakistani president Yahya Khan, Operation Searchlight in March of 1971 began the Bangladesh genocide. As Taroor writes, "the campaign quote, turned into a mass slaughter of minority Hindus, students, dissidents, and anyone else in the crosshairs of the army and collaborator-led death squads." End quote. There was widespread sexual violence against hundreds of thousands of women. Villages and cities were decimated. The death toll grew to hundreds of thousands, or as many as 3 million. In March of 1971, Sidney Shanberg, the New York Times' South Asia correspondent at the time, called the violence, quote, "...a pogrom on a vast scale, in a land where vultures grow fat," end quote. The war eventually ended with East Pakistan, backed by India, gaining independence as Bangladesh. So, where does Kissinger come into all of this? The United States initially backed the West Pakistani generals. Remember, Pakistan had helped Kissinger coordinate his secret trip to Beijing. In violation of a Congressional arms embargo, Nixon and Kissinger sent arms to Pakistan. And as you'll hear Dr. Yacoub mention, Kissinger ignored messages from US diplomats warning him about a genocide being committed under their watch. In his 1979 memoir, White House Years, Kissinger wrote that he considered his policy of restraint, to be correct, even beyond a potential relationship with China, with whom Pakistan had ties. Instead, he said, quote, For better or worse, the strategy of the Nixon administration on humanitarian questions was not to lay down a challenge to sovereignty that would surely be rejected, end quote. Yeah, I mean, I think
1: this is another area where Kissinger, I think, rightly comes in for severe criticism. And, you know, of course, Nixon, too, perhaps more so because he was the president setting the policy. But essentially the idea was to try for as long as possible to extend support to Pakistan, even though it was engaged in a series of actions that were both doomed to fail and um, morally reprehensible, which was basically the attempt to prevent uh what was then called West Pakistan from asserting its independence and emerging as the independent state of Bangladesh. So there's this effort on the part of Pakistan, the Pakistani government to prevent that secession from occurring. And it's you know it, it engages in extremely bloody repression in a failed effort to prevent that Uh, independence movement from succeeding. And basically Nixon and Kissinger support Pakistan and downplay any criticism of the humanitarian catastrophe resulting from Pakistani actions. And then, yeah, it does eventually become a, uh, it, it segues into a bilateral conflict between India and Pakistan, where India essentially intervenes on behalf of the emerging Bangladesh state. Um, And, you know, ultimately, India and Bangladesh prevail, Pakistan loses, but at the cost of just, you know, many hundreds of thousands of lives. And, you know, all with, you know, the United States very openly and in some ways incomprehensibly supporting Pakistan. You have a lot of U.S. diplomats who are just aghast. They they just can't believe that their own government is taking this stance, and in some ways it's it's similar in some ways to what we're seeing right now, where you know you have the Biden administration very strongly supporting Israel, while also you know putting pressure on Israel in some respects, in its war against uh, Hamas and Gaza, and you you see a number of employees in the State Department protesting. Uh, it was more dramatic, and I guess more unusual it wasn't it was uh in some ways unprecedented um to see this sort of thing happen back in 1971 where you you know you had a number of uh diplomats uh resigning in protest uh issuing these public statements denouncing the policy stance that their own government was taking and so forth just because it just seemed so um kind of um Perverse that the U.S. government would be taking this position, be you know so strongly supporting Pakistan, and you know Kissinger recognized, of course, that this was a hugely controversial step that he took, he and, and Nixon took, and that it was you know a blot on his record to some extent, and so he um, you know has to address it in his memoirs, and he he yeah he does offer these various uh, um, justifications, and you know part of it is. I guess uh, a somewhat honest statement on his part that, you know, the, the statement you no know, the for better or worse statement, which is that he saw his role as representative of the US government as dealing with heads of state and not um, being too critical about what heads of state were doing inside their own borders. That, you know, this is that would be an, an interference by the United States in the sovereignty of an ally. An interference against the sovereignty of an ally. You know, so that was, that was his justification also that this was facilitating the opening to China. Because if you look at the timing, this is the same year in which Nixon, or rather in which Kissinger takes his, uh, makes his secret trip to China. He does so from Pakistan and it's with Pakistan, the Pakistani government's help and facilitation that this secret dialogue takes place. So part of the justification is, yeah, we had to stay on the good side of the Pakistani government because they were helping us in this historically important initiative to open up relations with China. So yes, it came with some cost, but in the end, it was worth it. You know, That would be Kissinger's uh, justification for it.
0: Dr. Yakou mentioned how State Department officials both then and now have protested the U.S. government's actions. Recently, as he mentioned, U.S. diplomats have criticized the Biden administration's response to the October 7th attacks on Israel and the ensuing war on Gaza, with one resignation from an official who had been with the State Department for more than a decade. The October 7th attacks have drawn comparison to a war 50 years earlier, the Yom Kippur War, also known as the October War. In 1973, a coalition of Arab states launched surprise attacks during the Jewish holy day of Yom Kippur. Kissinger had become Secretary of State just two weeks before the war began on October 6th. I asked Dr. Yakub, how did Kissinger's policies during the Yom Kippur War influence what we're seeing unfold today?
1: Very soon after Kissinger becomes Secretary of State, just a few weeks after he's sworn in, <clears throat> this war breaks out in the Middle East, where Egypt and Syria attack Israeli positions in the Sinai Peninsula and the Golan Heights. These are uh, Egyptian and Syrian territories that Israel has been occupying since 1967. So it's a war to retake those territories. They don't attack Israel itself. They attack the Israeli positions in these occupied territories. And the war initially goes quite well for Egypt and Syria. They do take the Israelis by surprise and make what seemed at least from the Israeli perspective, to be some pretty rapid and frightening gains. But in large part, because of the assistance the Israelis get from the United States, they're able to turn the tide, retake the initiative, and eventually deal their Arab adversaries a military defeat. So Nixon and Kissinger do play an important role in assisting Israel during that war, primarily by arranging for a massive airlift of weapons to Israel during the war. So what you end up with is a ceasefire that segues into a long series of negotiations that Kissinger brokers, mainly between Egypt and Israel. And to, to understand what Kissinger is trying to do, you need to step back and look at what the broader international community was hoping to achieve at that time. So, as you and I'm sure many of your listeners know, in 1967, Israel had won a very lopsided victory against its Arab neighbors and had occupied a large swath of territory. In neighboring Arab countries, the Sinai Peninsula taken from Egypt, Golan Heights taken from Syria, West Bank taken from Jordan and the Gaza Strip taken from Egypt, actually, because Egypt had been occupying it prior to 1967. So all of this territory is now under Israeli occupation. And the main issue is what's going to happen vis-a-vis those territories. Is there some way of getting Israel to withdraw and achieving some broader settlement. So nothing significant really happens on that score between 1967 and 1973. But in the aftermath of the 1973 war, this issue is again, you know, on the world's agenda. And everybody, you know, across the uh, spectrum of ideology and geopolitical interest agrees that some kind of accommodation between Israel and its Arab neighbors needs to take place. The question is what the nature and scope of that settlement will be. Now, the main position embraced by countries throughout the world, and we're talking uh, not just Arab countries and third world countries, but also increasingly a large number of Western European countries, too, is that there should be a broad-based settlement whereby Israel withdraws from all of the territory it occupied in 1967. And in exchange for that, the Arab countries should recognize and make peace with Israel. And there should be some way in which the Palestinians are brought into this settlement too, although it's not entirely clear how that's going to happen. The the Palestinian issue is still very much uh, in formation and um, ideas are, are pretty vague. But nonetheless, that's the general idea, that there should be a comprehensive settlement you know, resulting in this broad-based land-for-peace uh, agreement. Now, Kissinger has a pretty different view. And here he, he looks at it uh, differently from the way uh, Nixon does. But at this moment, Nixon is preoccupied with the Watergate scandal. And so he's not able to direct foreign policy in the same way that he had been in previous years. So he kind of, I mean, you know, from time to time, he makes his views clear. And Nixon is a little bit more closely in line with the international consensus I said a moment ago. I mean, he actually does think Israel probably should withdraw from all of the territory it occupied, but he doesn't really have the ability to make that stick because he's so focused on Watergate. So it really does fall to Kissinger to spearhead the US diplomatic response to the 1973 war. And Kissinger has a very different view. He actually thinks it would be a bad idea for Israel to be pressured to withdraw from all of the territory it occupied in 1967. Partly is because he just doesn't want the United States to get into a serious diplomatic squabble with Israel. He thinks that would be you know, very bitter and uh, domestically destabilizing. Also, he basically accepts the argument that the Israeli government has been making uh, that the 1967 borders are indefensible. That if Israel uh, is forced to withdraw from all of the territory taken in 1967 and you know, confine itself to the original borders, he would be in a very vulnerable position vis-a-vis its Arab adversaries. You know, for the sake of its security, Israel needs to be able to hold on to a substantial portion of the territory it occupied in 1967. That's Kissinger's view. And so he sets out to spearhead a diplomatic effort that has the effect of reducing pressure on Israel to withdraw from the territories it had occupied. And his principal way of doing that is by working with Egypt's president, Anwar Sadat. Because it turns out that Sadat is extremely eager to reach some kind of agreement with Israel that would enable him to pull out of the Arab-Israeli conflict and focus instead on Egypt's domestic economic crisis, which is, by this time, very dire. You know, Sadat is telling himself, look, I can't keep devoting all of this, all of the nation's resources to the military confrontation with Israel. We need to pull back and focus on our economy at home. Kissinger realizes, in a way he almost intuits, in a shrewd way, that this is Sadat's position that even though Sadat is saying that, oh, okay, any agreement I reach with Israel has to be linked to a broader settlement, resulting in a full Israeli withdrawal from Arab territory, even though Sadat is saying that, Kissinger suspects that Sadat would, in the end, agree to a much narrower arrangement, where Egypt gets its territory back and Israel continues to hold the other Arab territories. And, and what's interesting is that Kissinger is essentially saying that in private, but in public, he's presenting something different. What he's saying in public is, look, we need to approach this problem in a step-by-step manner. It's not feasible to try to do everything all at once, you know, to, to have some big conference where Israel sits down with all of its Arab adversaries and, you know, reaches some a comprehensive settlement that settles that you know that solves the problem for once and for all. That's not realistic. The a more rational and realistic way of approaching it is to break it up into its component parts and address each part sequentially. And on a an intuitive level, that makes sense. You could think of a lot of situations in which in which that's exactly what you would do. You have this huge, overwhelming problem, and you tackle it piece by piece. But what people who accepted this argument didn't grasp is that certain steps have the effect of making other steps impossible. And here's the thinking. What Kissinger is basically, you know, thinking and saying privately is this. If we can get Egypt and Israel to make a deal with each other, and if Egypt agrees, you know, to stop, you know, confronting Israel militarily, What that will do is that it will subtract Egyptian power from the Arab-Israeli military equation. And once that has happened, the ability of the remaining Arab parties that have disputes with Israel, and we're talking Syria, Jordan, and the Palestine Liberation Organization, will be sharply diminished. Without Egypt on their side, they will have a much harder time pressuring Israel to give up the territories that Israel is holding. And Kissinger is very clear-eyed about this. And he actually, he tells the Israelis, listen, I know you don't want to give any land back to anybody, but if you just give the Sinai Peninsula back to Egypt, then you won't have to give any of the remaining territories to the other Arab parties. You know, so that is something that he's very um, deliberately projecting in his conversations with the Israelis and, and sometimes in private conversations with other U.S. officials. But the public story is, oh, you know, we're, we're tackling the Sinai Peninsula first, uh, and then we'll we'll deal with the Golan Heights, then we'll deal with the West Bank, and eventually the whole problem will be solved. But what happens instead, and, you know, Kissinger ends up being quite prescient, uh, is that Egypt and Israel do um, a recent accommodation. It doesn't happen uh, completely during Kissinger's time in office. It, you know, it's it comes to fruition with the Camp David Agreement of 1978 under Jimmy Carter, but that results in a peace treaty between Egypt and Israel, and uh, Israel continues to occupy all of the other territories: the West Bank, Gaza, the Golan Heights. Now. One argument that Kissinger can make in his in favor of this approach is that it stabilizes the situation, that in addition to shielding Israel from pressure to withdraw from the territories that it occupied in 67, it also reduces the likelihood of another full-scale Arab-Israeli war like the one that took place in 1973. And in fact, that is what happens. If you look at the last 50 years, there's been no shortage of carnage and bloodshed and you know, really, you know, horrific violence, but there has not been a full-scale Arab-Israeli war. And that is because it's not really possible for Air- Israel's neighbors to wage such a war. So the the upside is: yes, we don't have another major war. The downside is that the underlying conflict, and the core of it, of course, is the dispute between israel and the palestinians remains unresolved so for that reason you can point to kissinger's legacy as having been very important and consequential and i would argue in you know consequential in a pretty negative way
0: it's pretty incredible to hear you know how even today 50 or so years later he's still continuing to influence Foreign policy. Um, When you were talking about how Kissinger and Nixon and the international community were disagreeing um, on the question of Israel withdrawing, it sort of made me wonder, in general, how creative and ingenious were Kissinger's ideas as compared to what other people were thinking at the time? You know, how much did his policies reflect, you know, the overarching values and ideas of the 70s and that
1: time. Yeah. I mean, I, I do give Kissinger a lot of credit for being highly intelligent and creative. So as, as I have described it in um, a book I wrote and some articles, his, his Middle East policy, at least, was brilliant. I, you know, I use the word brilliant, but it was in the service of a strategy that itself proved catastrophic or at least, you know, very, very uh, negative for the prospects of resolving the dispute between Israel and its Arab neighbors, especially the Palestinians. Now, to the, to what extent that fits in with a broader zeitgeist of the 1970s? I mean, that's an interesting question. I mean, in one way, Kissinger was right for the times in that by the 1970s, the consequences of following a highly ideological Cold War policy were increasingly recognized as being pretty negative. You now, the United States had launched this crusade against communism in the late 40s with the Truman Doctrine. And it had this idea that the United States needs to confront communist aggression or subversion wherever it rears its ugly head around the globe did result in the Vietnam War and by the 1970s there was widespread recognition that this was a pretty you know catastrophic way of approaching foreign policy and you know one way of thinking of it was well the united states was too moralistic it was too ideologically committed to combating communism it was it viewed the world in black and white terms it's better if it can kind of see shades of gray, and that's where Kissinger comes in, where he's he's saying, yeah, we, you know, we should engage with all of these different countries around the world, all of these different governments, even those that we find repugnant in terms of their human rights records, um, or their you know lack of commitment to democracy, things like that. So, in that sense, because there was a some appetite for a more you know realistic approach to foreign policy, that didn't get too hung up on these ideological binaries or these moralistic categories. And to the extent that that mindset was prevalent in the 70s, Kissinger was able to satisfy it by saying, look, yeah, we're in a more complex time, there are shades of gray, there's lots of moral ambiguity, and I'm very well equipped to operate in that world. Right, you know, I'm not going to get hung up on questions of morality and human rights and democracy and that sort of thing.
0: Some might argue, and this might be really oversimplifying it, but some might say that it's almost terribly ironic that Kissinger fled, you know, Nazi violence as a teenager. His, I believe, his maternal grandparents were killed by the Nazis, only for him to be connected to so much bloodshed Mm -hmm. on the international stage in Cambodia, Vietnam, Bangladesh, and also Chile. How would Kissinger justify that paradox? And do you think that for him, the ends justify the means?
1: Yeah, and at certain points, he was quite explicit about this, about the role of instability and fanaticism in global affairs and the necessity of trying to rein in those forces. So he would argue that, and also, I guess, a a recognition that human beings are terribly flawed and that they are prone to follow leaders who will take them in very dangerous directions if their impulses are not kept under control. So he, I think Kissinger has this suspicion of enthusiastic and vigorous social and political movements at home. You know, Nazism, you could see as this kind of fanatical expression of a particular kind of politics that flourished in Germany in the interwar period. And, you know, perhaps also the fact that, you know, Germany was not sufficiently constrained by outside neighbors at the start, that there was not a a powerful effort to resist Germany's aggressive moves, moves that ultimately sparked World War II, that there needed to be a much stronger kind of balance of power where prevailing forces could rein in Germany's aggressive impulses these are all themes that kissinger played on in describing his own commitment to foreign policy that you know he's he's he wants to have the ability to check ad, adversaries who might be aggressive or hostile to the united states he also is suspicious of enthusiastic social movements that might develop in the domestic realm because those could lead to fanatical and dangerous forms of government. So I mean, it's it's kind of vague, but that general outlook, you know, you, that, those are ways in which you can connect his upbringing in Nazi Germany to the way he conducted foreign policy decades
0: later. Despite all the controversy surrounding him, as we mentioned before, he was almost really popular with the american public Mm -hmm. in the 70s but also today he was so popular with these really really powerful people up until his death he was traveling visiting talking with these powerful people and you know there's like that famous thing where hillary clinton was saying i'm proud to call henry kissinger a friend and then bernie sanders is like i'm proud that he's not my friend henry kissinger is not right so (laughs) why do you think that despite all this controversy around him These powerful people and people in general still really tend to gravitate towards him.
1: Yeah, I think there are a couple of things going on. On one level, I think there is just a general desire to heal old wounds and to reach some kind of moment of of reconciliation among people who were very strongly opposed to one another decades ago. So, especially people like. Hillary Clinton, or other, you know, liberal, mainstream politicians who may have had radical or radicalish youths. You know, Hillary and Bill Clinton, Bill more than Hillary, you know, strongly opposed the Vietnam War. You know, in the early seventies, they both of them probably would have viewed Kissinger and Nixon with great disdain. But as they age and you know, they 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 mature into political roles, they be, you know, leadership roles, they have a desire to heal those old wounds and to reach some kind of accommodation and understanding with figures they strongly opposed in the past. So, you know, basically it's like, we're, you know, we're growing up and we're moving past those old divisions. I think that part of that impulse lies uh, behind the celebration of Henry Kissinger, you know, in recent decades. I think also it goes back to the quality I mentioned earlier his ability to be all things to all people, to basically make anybody he talks to, you know, within reason, you know, there are some people on the far fringes whom he'll never be able to win over, but basically to persuade a pretty wide swath of people that he's fundamentally sympathetic to them, that he sees the world in the same way that they do. And he's trying to uh, advance, you know, the this shared vision by dealing with other people who may not be quite so reasonable. You know, in, this, in the way that Kissinger, Kissinger would tell liberal politicians or members of the media that, uh, yeah, he's basically on their side, but he's got to deal with Nixon and, you know, uh You need some stabilizing forces in the room to keep to rein in Nixon's wilder impulses. I think Kissinger always created that kind of simpatico connection with people he spoke to. It was just it was just a personal quality he had, a gift. Um, You know, he I think he just liked to please people. He liked to be liked, and so he acted in ways that caused people to like him. And he was he's also very Erudite, well-read, he has this vast store of knowledge. You know, he was a professor at Harvard. He, you know, has written many, many books, and he's able to speak with a certain kind of eloquence. Um, you know, some critics have picked apart the things he said and noted that, well, okay, it sounds good on the surface, but actually, he's not really saying anything at all. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Um, and he, so he has, he has a, a skill at uh, communicating ideas in ways that are exciting to people. They sound they sound substantive, they sound um, complex, they sound sophisticated. Sometimes they actually are. Sometimes they're less so, but they always sound exciting. And so I think that's that's a big part of his his appeal.
0: And finally, my last two questions for Dr. Yaku were, how does he, a US foreign policy expert, view Kissinger's legacy? And how will people 100 years from now remember Henry Kissinger?
1: Well, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think that they will remember him basically for the things that we remember him now, Uh, just because it's been several decades already. And, you know, it's possible that in the decades to come, there will be some major cataclysms or transformations in human history that cause us to see things we can't see now. And maybe Kissinger's role in those things will be evident. Uh, But I would say that fundamentally, people will remember him as a very skilled practitioner of foreign policy who succeeded in moving the United States out of a situation in which it was dangerously overexposed. And we're talking about the situation the United States found itself in in the late 1960s where you know it was still bogged down in Vietnam, it was clear that the Vietnam War was a disaster. That you know US power relative to other countries had declined, but the United States was still acting as if it could be the world's policeman. I think you know Kissinger recognized this. Nixon arguably recognized it even more keenly than Kissinger did, but Kissinger was the one who enacted this vision on the ground. And so Kissinger basically helped to steer the country. Uh, towards a way of dealing with the world that was a bit less overtly domineering, you know that it recognized the limits of its own power. So that that's the broad thing that Kissinger did. But you know within the you know confines of that overall worldview, he did particular things that were quite reckless and dangerous and that may have left a very negative legacy and so you know my view of his middle east role falls into that category Um, others may focus on different aspects of his legacy you know one argument people have made is that kissinger was fundamentally suspicious of democracy and uh, he was hostile to uh, the notion that u.s foreign policy needed to be strongly moral and therefore he um, left the legacy that you know put the United States on the wrong side of history in a number of ways. I think there is something to that as well. So he, he's somebody who, who did recognize and respond to the limits of American power, but also made decisions that um, could be seen as pretty reckless and dangerous as
0: well. That was Dr. Salim Yakoub, a professor of history and U.S. foreign relations at UCSB. Thank you for listening. With KCSB News, I'm Joyce Chi.